ahead and dive in. We've been in a series for the past two weeks. It's actually the third week of, and we're calling it, Something Has Got to Change. How many of you, 2017 kicked off and you're saying, man, something in my life has just got to be different than it was before. Something, an aspect of my life, maybe it's health. Uh, maybe it's fitness, maybe it's marriage, maybe it's friendships, whatever it is, you look at it all and you're saying something has got to change. I know for me, um, the beginning of January, I said, man, something has got to change for me physically. So I started running again. And um, yesterday, I've been running for like a whole four days, okay? So it hasn't really been that consistent. Uh, But I've been running and uh, around 12 o'clock yesterday, I laid on my bed, and I was like, man, I'm just, the kids were sleeping. My wife was out running. I'm like, man, I'm just going to take a little nap. Three hours later, um, I wake up, and I was like, oh, my. Like, I haven't done that since high school. Anybody, like, three-hour naps, you wake up, and you feel, like, completely hungover after getting out of bed. You know what I mean? You should not know what that means. But uh, <laughs> anyway, so what I want to do today is if you have a Bible, turn with me to John chapter 15. And I think throughout this series, we're asking questions like this. Is it really possible for somebody to change? And I think um, down in our core, we maybe believe that, but when it comes to actually practically playing that out, I think it's difficult. Because here's the truth. Um, If you go into Barnes & Noble or Books A Million, and I actually did it this week just to, to see if this was actually true or not, half of the bookstore, literally half of it is self-help. Like different books on how you can become a better you, how you can, you know, fast track your life to health or fast track your life to finance or anything. And here's the truth. Genuine, authentic change is not going to be quick. It's probably most likely going to be slow and it's going to be a theological term that we call sanctification, which which means for the rest of your life, God is going to be changing you and shaping you and molding you. But If you're in here today and you say, I I know that there's an aspect, there's a piece of my life that needs to change, but I've been struggling with this for like 25 years or 30 years or my entire life. Is it really possible for that aspect of my life to change? Like how does a fearful person become brave? How does a germaphobe not become a germaphobe anymore? How How does somebody who is a racist become tolerant? Or how is somebody that is not disciplined, like your life is just completely disordered, you have no discipline, how does that person become disciplined? Or the question that we're all asking, a lot of us are asking today is, how does an addict become sober? Like, how does real life change genuinely happen? And here's the basis of what I want to build this message on this morning, is simply this. The change you need is most likely not the change you want. So the change that you need is most likely not the change that you want. So in John 15, we're going to look at a story, or actually Jesus is teaching his disciples in this moment right here. We're going to look at something, the primary way that God uses to actually change people. And I'll be honest with you, it can be difficult sometimes. So let's dive into it. John 15 verse 1 says, I am the grapevine and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit, and he prunes the branches that do not bear fruit, so they will produce even more fruit. So, how many of you in here, any, anybody do some gardening, some yard work? Anybody, anybody here have like the black thumb? <laughs> like you just don't touch plants? Um, that's me and my wife. I'm just kidding. Um, I'm going to be in trouble for that later. Uh, 
No, but if you've, if you've ever watched a rose bush, you know this. In order for it to produce something or, or the rose that we want, like a beautiful rose, um, you have to consistently prune it. Now, if you don't prune this rose bush, one of two things are going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is the vines actually begin to grow in on themselves and they literally begin to choke the plant. The second thing that happens is all the extra vines begin to divert the plant's attention away from the few good roses. So if you don't prune it, here's what happens. You get a bunch of really small, ugly-looking roses and maybe one or two good ones, and eventually the plant just dies because you don't prune it. It ends up choking itself. You end up with a plant that looks like something out of a Tim Burton film. Is essentially what you end up looking like. And it doesn't work. So... The primary way that God is going to change people is he's going to teach us that we have to be pruned in order to grow. Now, the thing that I love about this verse is it says, he prunes the branches that do not bear fruit so they will produce even more fruit. So here's the thing. As a Christian right now, maybe you're producing a little bit of fruit. Maybe you're actually producing something of what you can muster up. And so people, visually, it looks like you're producing something. But if you want to produce even more fruit, if you want authentic, genuine change, he's saying you have to be pruned. So we continue in John 15, 3. It says, you have already been pruned and purified by the message I have given you. Now I want you to realize in this text, he's actually talking about people that have given their hearts to Jesus that have surrendered their lives to Jesus. He said, if you've given your heart to Jesus, then you've heard the word. You've heard the good news of the gospel. And this is what he's saying. The word purified in Greek actually translates to this idea of being stripped away. So when it says that he's purifying us, that when we come into a relationship with Jesus and we begin to understand the truth of what a relationship should actually look like with God, here's what it says. The next thing that's going to happen is he's going to start stripping you down. He's going to start transferring what you love most in your life right now, and he's going to divert it to something that you should love even more. So remember, the change that you want is most li- or the change that you need is most likely not the change that you want. So when we come into a relationship with Jesus, we begin to understand one thing, that no longer are our lives our own, right? You begin to understand, okay, that life that I had before, there's nothing in that for me. Maybe you made some decisions, maybe you made some past things and some regrets, and you begin to see it. It all becomes, begins to come into full view, and you say, that life is not the life that I want to live anymore. But then something else happens, you come into a relationship with Jesus, you begin to understand, okay, this is how I need to live, and this is how I need to present myself, and this is what I need to do to have a relationship with God. But everything in your life doesn't just magically go away, right? And I think sometimes we paint Christianity as this, is like, listen, as soon as you give your life to Jesus, for the rest of your life, it's just peace. It's just joy, and everything else in your life will begin to work out. Well, then here's what happens. You give your life to Jesus, and maybe you begin to see a better reality that you should live, but then all of a sudden you're still tempted with the same things. You still run. You still got to go back to the same boss, (laughs) right, that you work with. You still go back to the same husband, the same wife. You're still in your same environment, and you still have to deal with the same things over and over and over again. So even though all this begins to take place, we begin to realize there's still more that needs to be done. So once God has rescued us or he's saved us 
from sin, he begins to now focus on pruning us. So now that he's saved us, now that he's welcomed us into the family, he goes, okay, now for the rest of your life, I'm going to prune you. Because I want you to produce, I want you to produce fruit, and I want you to produce even more fruit than you could ever imagine. But during the pruning process, he begins to strip away some things, and to be honest with you, it can be painful, right? When he begins to take, uh, you know, the things that we love and the things that we want or the things that we thought were so important, and he begins to divert our attention to something else, it can be painful. But here's the truth. If you reject the pruning process, you'll be a lot like that rose bush that has never been pruned. Your potential, you'll never realize that potential. Martin Luther once said this, the word does a lot of cleaning. So he's talking about scripture. He says, the word does a lot of cleaning in our life, but some things can only be removed by suffering. So, so here's the truth. When you come face to face with Jesus and you dive into the scriptures and you begin to realize, okay, man, as a Christian, God has called me to live a life in community and he wants me to be open and share these things. What he's saying is this, there are some things in your life that will only be realized through going through difficult, hard times and pruning times and suffering. So let's get one thing straight. Pruning is almost always painful and it's confusing at times. Let's just be honest in here. Have you ever had God allow something to happen in your life and you want to just raise your hand and go, um, God, excuse me, uh, why? <laughs> you ever had that, like, Why? And the truth is, in suffering, sometimes the why questions are never answered. They're not. I find oftentimes in suffering or when you're dealing with things, the main thing, it's not even that God's like trying to teach you one specific thing. Oftentimes, he's just trying to get you, hey, can you just love me through this? Can your relationship still be the same that it is even when you're going through difficult times? Let me ask you this. Have you ever seen a gardener... um, who prunes a plant, and then when he's done pruning it, like, you feel sorry for the plant? <laughs> Anybody know? You're like, dang, dude, you, like, whack that plant down. You know what I'm talking about? We have some, at our Jennings campus, we have all these different rose bushes and different hedges. I don't even know what all the technical terms are for them. Um, but we have a, a, a landscaper that comes in, and every, you know, few months, he'll cut them down. I remember uh, a few weekends ago, I, I drove by them, and I'm like, what? In, like, there's nothing there. <laughs> what happened? Like, who came in here with a hacksaw and went to town on these plants? And it really is confusing. It looks like it's just devastated, right? But then in the end, the, the gardener sees the full picture when he's hacking these things down. He knows, okay, I've got to hack this branch down. I've got to cut the top off of this. And it's going to look ugly for a season. And it's not going to feel well for a season. And the plant in that moment is like, bro, you just cut off my best branch. But the gardener sees the bigger picture, right? He says, I have to cut this off because if I don't cut this off, then you're never going to produce the fruit that, I, that you were intended to produce in the first place. And here's what I want you to understand about God. He's a lot like a gardener. So there's going to be times in your life where you have those questions of like, God, why are you doing this? I feel like you're just hacking away at every specific thing in my life. Like maybe you had this boyfriend or this girlfriend, and the relationship was just so well, and then you feel like, God, you just screwed it all up. <laughs> or maybe you had this job or this whatever circumstance in life, and you feel like God is just hacking away. 
See, the scripture teaches us that as human beings, we only see in part. We're only able to see little bit-sized and bite-sized pieces, but God is able to zoom out and see the whole picture. And he knows exactly what needs to be done in that moment in your life. So I pose this question all the time, like if, if you find yourself in a season of suffering, or you find yourself in a moment of pain, or even like with, filled with questions of why, or just confusion, or whatever it is, could it be that God is just pruning you? That God is coming in and he's saying, I love you so much, and I know this hurts right now, but I see the bigger picture. I know right now it feels like nothing makes sense and, you know, nothing feels like it's just going right. But I promise you, I see the bigger picture. Continuing on in John 15, verse 4. It says, remain in me and I will remain in you. Now watch this. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine. And you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Now, here's the truth. The same principle applies to our spiritual life with Jesus. Life is not possible, like genuine, when I say life, I mean like genuine joy, genuine peace, living the Christian life to the fullest potential if you're not connected to Jesus. So what this verse is saying, in other words, plant yourself in Christ and life will flow through you. So if you feel like just completely disconnected from God, Like you feel like, man, I haven't heard the voice of God. Or maybe you're in here today and you're like, I know nothing about God or Jesus. And you'll never know anything about him unless you begin to connect yourself to him. And I think a lot of times we complicate the process, don't we? Like we feel like connecting with God is just this difficult thing to do. Maybe you walked in these doors and let's be honest, maybe this is your first time in church in 20 years or whatever it is. And it's not as hard as most people think it is. I think it just simply starts off with, hey, God, I'm, I'm still here. Um, I know I've been quiet for a while, but the, the truth is, you know, my life isn't going the way that I want it to go. And I heard that you can help me with that. And it literally starts with that. You just having an honest conversation with Jesus. John fifteen five says, yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them. I love this. It says, if you remain in me, if you continue to devote yourself to Jesus, he says, I'll continue to devote myself to you. And I in them will produce much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, I think this scripture oftentimes is extremely misinterpreted, because the word nothing in this text does not literally mean nothing. Because here's, tr- here's the truth. Um, even if you're not saved, you can still do good things, right? I mean, you can still read the Bible. You can still go to church. You can still serve the poor. You can still give money away. You can still do morally good things. But what this text is saying, the nothing in this means, apart from Christ, you can do nothing of eternal value. Nothing that is going to make a lasting difference. See, I don't know if you you realize this or not, but the choices and the decisions that we make here on earth actually will affect the rest of our life for eternity. Like, we are created as eternal beings. And I think 
that emptiness that you feel inside is it, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve took a part of the fruit. Before Genesis chapter 3, we were perfect and complete. And when Genesis chapter 3 happened and sin entered into a world that kind of cracked something and broke the foundations of earth. And so for the rest of our life, we're searching and we're looking for, for that fulfillment that we had in Genesis chapter 2. We're always trying to go back. We're always looking for something to make us happy again. Something to fill us. Something to fill that void inside of us. And here's the truth. When I say nothing of eternal value, this is how it plays out. It's kind of the whole iPhone syndrome. So let me explain it like this. Remember when the iPhone first came out? It was actually 2007. And I'm just a geek that remembers that date. 2007, the iPhone first came out. And I remember when it first came out, you would look at all the lines in the stores and you had people just like crazy waiting in line. Could not wait until this phone came out. My wife and I had just got married. I'm like, I'm telling you I'm going to get an iPhone. And then you find the price and it's like $800. And you're like, I'm not getting an iPhone. <laughs> but what has the iPhone done? What has Apple done? What they've done is they've placated to your desire for more. And they market it so well. So what, what ends up happening? This actually, they did it to me. They got me. I went in that, I had an upgrade on my phone. And I went in, I was like, I want the 6S Plus. So I got that phone. Three days later, the 7 came out. I was like, the 6S is the worst phone on the face of the earth. And like some of you got the seven. Well, guess what? Tomorrow they're going to release the eight. I don't know that if that's true, but it probably is. But what do they do? Finally, when you get everything that you thought you wanted, they release something new. And that's how the world is. Once you find single people, let me just talk to you for a moment. You say, I'm telling you, once I have a man... Or once I have me a girl, uh, everything is going to be great. And here's the problem. You're going to get them, and then you're going to put a weight on them that they cannot carry. And you're looking to find a happiness in them. And this is what happens. You implode the relationship. And it never works. And so you go from relationship to relationship because basically the value that you're looking for in that person can only come from Christ. So this is why Jesus says, if you remain in me, I will give you the life that you so desire. But if not, you can do nothing of eternal value. John 15, 6 through 9. says, anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into piles to be burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, you may ask for anything you want and it will be granted. When you produce much fruit, you are my disciples. This brings great glory to my Father. I have loved you even as the Father has loved me. Remain in my love. This is such an amazing statement in verse 9. I have loved you as the Father has loved me. So imagine it this way. God is saying, my love for you is perfect. If you're a parent in here, you may understand this to an extent. I mean, when you look at, especially I remember when we had Eli, who, which by the way, my firstborn is eight years old today, which is crazy. Eight years old. 
But I remember when we first had Eli, it was like everything in your world just stops, right? Everything stops for a moment. And it's like just for a brief moment, everything in life kind of comes into perspective. And when you hold that baby for the first time, I remember when I held my little girl, our, our third child, for the first time, I remember looking at her and I'm like, you will never get married. <laughs> I, I kiss her on the lips every single night and I said, and this, I promise you, you can ask her this and she can repeat it to you. Every single night I tell her, you have to make dad one promise. She's like, okay, what? I said, you will not get married until you ask me. Okay, promise, promise. But when you hold that child for the first time, everything makes sense. And you think for a moment, I couldn't love anybody more, right? And God is saying, take that love and go even step higher and a step further. And that's how much I love you. But I love you so much that you can't even comprehend it. And the thing that I love about God's love is it doesn't matter how much you've blown it. He continues to love you. Because for all five of my kids, the truth is they could turn their back on God and they could go do their own thing and get confused in life. But at the end of the day, I'm still going to love them. At the end of the day, regardless of the choices that they make and the life they choose to lead, I will love them. And that is how the Father loves us. And he's saying, remain in that love. Man, when you feel low and you feel like life has just beat you around and you feel like nothing makes sense and you have all these whys... The only thing that you can turn back to and that you can remain in is that love. That a God who so scandalously and graciously loves you regardless of what you have done. God says, my love is incomprehensible. I want you to learn to remain in that love. See, remaining in Christ is not about what you do for him. It's about remaining in what he actually thinks about you. And this, I think, seems to be the hardest part about Christianity most times and the hardest part for most people to learn because people genuinely believe, well, God will love me and God will accept me once I perform. Once I do all these things, then God will love me. But it's the beautiful thing about grace. God says, listen, there's nothing that you could ever do that is going to make me love you any more or any less. But a lot of us buy into this idea that the better of a person I become, the more God is pleased with me. The more righteous I am, the more moral I am. But here's what the gospel says. The gospel says you can never be good enough. And Jesus accepts us not because we're good, but because he is good. At the end of the day, it's called grace. So here's what needs to happen. Jesus wants you to change, not because he told you to change. Jesus wants you to change because you want to change, because you learn to remain in that love. It's a much different thing. If somebody just comes up to you and says, hey, listen, this is just how it's going to be. Here's the rules. Follow them. And I don't care what you think. Are you going to want to just follow? You're like, yeah, this is, sign me up, right? <laughs> Not at all. Jesus is saying, I want you to fall so much in love with me that the change that happens in your life is just something that you want to do because you love me. See, the gospel is not about a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not a bunch of rules. It's not. Because if you get it at its core, at the end of the day, you understand it's all about grace, and we serve and we love Jesus because he first loved us. And the reason that we live this way, the reason that we act this way, is because he's loved us, regardless of who we are or what we have done. 
See, real change begins not with being told what to do for God, but believing what God has done for you. But believing that he died for you even when you didn't deserve it. Believing that he loves you even when you don't deserve it. Believing that he gives you grace even when you deserve justice. See, the New Testament writers are clear that believing rightly equals behaving rightly. See, if you believe the gospel, if you believe actually what Jesus says about you, you'll begin to behave the way that you should. You'll begin to think the way that you ought to. John 15, 10. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Now, this verse can seem contradicting to everything we just read, right? Because for the first half of the sermon, I said, listen, God loves you no matter what. And then you read a verse and it says, if you don't read it correctly, you can think, well, okay, well, God loves me if I obey his commands, right? Now, this verse usually trips people up, but here's what it means. It means the direct opposite of what it actually says it means. His love is not a reward for being good. It's saying we stay connected to Jesus if we follow his command. So here's what I mean by this. Reading the word, praying, silence and solitude, community, these are not ways to earn God's love. These are ways to stay connected to God's love. It's not like you do them and God is more pleased with you because you had, maybe you're like me in here and I still get tripped up on this sometimes. You ever do this? Like you keep tally of how much you've like, okay, I read for seven days this week. Seven days! (laughs) And then like you skip like five days. You're like, well, I've got to start all over again. Three days! And maybe you do that with something in your life. The truth is, God's not saying, just because you do those things, I don't love you anymore. He says, I want you to do these things because if you do these things, you'll stay connected to me. See, the challenge is not earning God's love. The challenge is living in constant awareness of God's love. See, obeying God's command to read the Bible allows you to reflect on the truth of what God actually says about you. That he actually loves you regardless. See, if you're not changing, here's here's the thing. If you're not changing, if habits are not changing in your life, if a mindset is not changing in your life, it's because you're not connected to the vine, which is Jesus. You're not connected to the life source. See, when you sever yourself from that vine, when you sever yourself from those things, you just remain disconnected and you feel distant. See, we pray, we read, we enter into community, we take time of silence and solitude, not because we have to, But at the end of the day, we realize this is the very thing that keeps me in unison with Jesus. See, Jesus' commands are like wires that connect us to the power of the gospel. A wire in and of itself has zero power. But when you connect it to a source, all of the power flows through it, right? Um, Many years ago, my my brother Matt and I, we used to live in, in Broussard, Louisiana, my mom used to get so frustrated at us because this was at the very beginning of, and it's crazy that I'm old enough to remember this, but this is the uh, very beginning of like the internet boom. You know, remember the modem in your house and you'd hear it actually dialing up? Like our kids today don't, don't even know what that looks like or what that sounds like. I, I grew up in the day of like, you've got mail. Remember that? Um, so my brother Matt and I, we've always been like technology guys. We've always loved that kind of stuff. 
So we had this genius idea when I was about, uh, I was probably about 10, and my brother was, I was probably about 12, and he's probably about 8 at this time. And we used to take apart electronics. We would take apart radios. So my mom had this old radio. She had this old vacuum and this old TV. And we got all three of them. I specifically remember my mom pointing her finger at it, like her long finger. Don't you boys take this stuff apart. And so she's, she's in the bath one day, and my brother Matt and I were like, <laughs> let's take it apart. So we grab all three of them. We lock ourselves in the room as because we think mom can't see us in there, you know. And we start taking all this stuff apart. And so we have all these pieces laid out on the carpet. And we're like, what are we going to build? And my brother Matt's like, we're going to build a robot. I was like, genius idea. So we start constructing this thing. We got wires. And, and, and it looks like a robot. And so Matt's like, all right, dude. Um, we built it all. I think it's going to work. We just need power. I was like, dude, I got gotcha. you. Take this TV antenna, connect it to the robot, and we'll stick it into the outlet of the wall. <laughs> so we both build this robot, and we get up to this, and so dumb. We're like, oh, yes, dude, as soon as we plug this in, it's going to start walking, talking, serving us everything, right? We plug this thing in. I kid you not. We both get so shocked and electrocuted, it blows us back, <laughs> We burn a hole in the rug. The entire power in my house goes out. We're like, oh my God, what are we going to do? Mom is going to kill us. My mom comes out, what just happened? And she's trying to get in the door like, mom, we're, uh, we're naked, don't come in. You know? So my brother and I literally rearranged the bedroom to cover this burnt hole on the rug. My mom, for about a year, a year and a half, never knew what happened. Never knew. She just thought we had just so kindly rearranged the room and cleaned our room up. And uh, it came out in a story of like, yeah, I remember that time all the lights went out. (laughs) That was us. And here's the truth. I share that funny story because a lot of us are like that. A lot of us are like, man, we're, I'm just going to construct this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make this happen. Maybe you come into church and you, even you hear a message like this. Okay, I'm going to leave here and I'm just going to be a better person. I'm going to read my Bible seven days a week. I'm going to do this. And you build out this plan. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. I'm going to get into community. And then Monday comes around you're like, nah. <laughs> Not doing it. And here's the truth. Everything that you build, everything that you construct, everything, all your attempts will fail miserably if you're not connected to Jesus. If it doesn't come out of true heart transformation where God has grabbed a hold of your heart and say, and he says, you hold on to that idea of, man, God loves me no matter what happens. If I miss a day of reading, he still loves me just the same, even when I didn't read. He still loves me just the same. See, the spiritual disciplines do not make God love us more. They just keep us grounded in his love. John 15 through 14. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with my joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. This is my commandment. Love each other each in the same way I have loved you. There is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So here's the thing. 
We don't need to just learn to do the right things. We need to learn to love the right things again. It's not about just doing the right things. It's learning to reset our affections. Learning to love the right things all over again. So real quickly, I want to talk about two different ways, two practical ways that people actually change. And I think you can boil them down to these two things. Number one, there's mechanical change. So this is change by external compulsion. Everything that I just kind of mentioned. So, so let me frame this out in an example. It's the man that only changes in his marriage, not because God has genuinely changed his heart, because one, he has fear. One, he tries to change morally because he fears, I don't want my, life, my wife to leave me, so I'm going to try to clean myself up. The second thing, it's pride. He doesn't, I don't want the stigma of divorce. I don't want to be labeled as that. So I'll start to clean myself up. Or the third thing is there's a desire for something else. You want a stable home. You want it on the outside. You want everything to look like it's functioning and firing on all cylinders. And we can do that for a time being. But in all these things, he's not loving her. He is loving himself. He's not loving her, he's loving himself. And here's what it is. Religious activity can be motivated by all these things that I just mentioned. You can clean yourself up on the basis of fear. You can clean yourself up on the basis of pride. You can clean yourself up on the basis of, I just want something else. So we come to God because, what? We fear punishment. We come to God because there's pride and I want people in the circle that I'm around to esteem me as something. So what does it look like? When you're around church folks, you act like church people. When you're around work people, you act like work people. You change yourself up for the environment. Or maybe you desire blessing. But as soon as you remove the external pressures, you go back to the way you were. So as soon as you remove that, as soon as you remove the pressure to perform, you just resort back to who you really are. See, a lot of Christians get busy for Jesus, but don't develop friendship with Jesus. And this is what it means at the end of the day. It's not about just doing things for God. It's not about how much you did or did not do. At the end of the day, God wants to have a relationship with you. He wants to be like a friend who sticks closer than a brother. But you see, the gospel changes us in a completely different way. It's not mechanical change. It's not religious change. It's not change on the basis of, I just want to clean myself up so I can look good in front of people. The way that the gospel changes us is through organic change. So as you pursue Jesus, or as your pursuit for Jesus increases, your desires naturally begin to change. So as you begin to pray, as you begin to read, as you begin to fall more and more in love with Jesus, as you begin to enter into community, although it may be uncomfortable at first, as you begin to do all these things organically, your desires and your motivations and your thoughts begin to change. Now the question then turns to, well, how do I fuel my desires and my thoughts towards Jesus? Like, how do I stir my affections for Christ? And I think it's on the basis of one verse, and there's probably many other, but I think this is one of the best ones. 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. That should stir every affection that we have. So I want you to think about something for a moment. 
Think about the decision that you made that maybe you still think about today that you wish you would have never made. Think about the lowest point in your life where you felt like you were just an absolutely complete failure and you were surely convinced that God couldn't love you. But he says, but I loved you first. And even in that moment when you felt so low, I still loved you. The book of Ephesians chapter 1 is probably one of my favorite chapters in the, in the Bible. But in the opening scriptures, it says, before the foundations of the earth. So before anything, like anything was created, before you even had an opportunity to make a mess of your life, it says, God loved you. That is what fuels our affections for Christ. That is what should stir us. See, our pursuit for Christ flows out of how much he loves us. But love in our hearts for God will only be produced by us practicing to pursue him. See, a relationship with Jesus and growing in deeper intimacy with Jesus, you have to practice at it. It's a lot like riding a bicycle for the first time. I remember teaching our kids how to ride a bike, and there's about a few different phases that you have to go through. The first one is what? You had the training wheels on, and even with the training wheels on, they're pretty terrible, right? They're riding, and so you're riding behind them, and they're still tipping over because they're trying to figure out their balance. And then finally, they move on to the place where they can, hey, Dad, I got it without the training wheels. I mean, I can ride it without you holding me and catching me, and they, they ride around with the training wheels. And then what happens? After a few months, they see their older siblings riding around with no training wheels. I want to do that. So a few months later, you take the training wheels off, and dad runs behind you for a little while. And what ends up happening? You find this confidence in yourself. You finally find your balance, and you're riding without the training wheels. And it's the same thing in the relationship with Jesus. Maybe you came in here this morning, and God's just saying, hey, listen, I rescued you a long time ago, but the reason that you don't feel intimacy with me is because you're not practicing. So maybe it's literally all it takes is, okay, I'm going to dive into the Word, and even when I read the Bible, I just don't get anything out of it. And maybe you don't. Maybe you pray, and you don't feel better after you pray. But the more and the more that you do it, you're going to realize the more and more that you need it. Until one day you turn around and you realize, man, this is what fuels me. This is what drives me. You'll turn around and say, man, I can't live without community. I can't live without other people being involved in my life. And I can't live without prayer. And I can't live without the spiritual disciplines. Your love for Jesus will increase when your practice for Jesus increases. And the truth is, when your practice for Jesus increases, the change in your life will begin to happen. So remember this. The change that you so need may not be the change that you want. Because God's primary method of changing us is pruning us. He's a lot like a gardener. He comes into the aspects of our life and he begins to pull up different things. And it may not feel good, but the truth is, is what we most need. You see, mechanical change will trim the fruit of sin, but organic changes will begin to pull the roots of sin. And that's what religion does. When we just try to follow the rules, when we just try to do more, we just try to act better, on the outside, it kind of, people can look at us and say, oh yeah, you're fruitful. And your life is going well. 
but then you go behind closed doors and you're miserable and your marriage is a wreck and you don't know what to do and your finances and your kids and your boss and all this kind of stuff. Organic change says, you know what, I want to pull sin out at the root. And the truth is, it hurts. (laughs) It does hurt and it doesn't feel good. But simply put, mechanical change is religion and organic change is gospel change. So let me close with this verse. In John 15, 4, we already read it, but let me read it again. It says, Remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. So here's the whole basis of everything I'm talking about. If you remain in Christ, you'll get the change that you need. And listen, it may not be quickly, it may not be right away. And for those of you in here that are new to the faith, or maybe you don't know Jesus at all, but you're like, I want that change that he's talking about. The fast track to change is community. You get around other people. You know, next week, we're going to be launching all of our life groups on, on Sunday. Where they're going to have all the tables with the different life group leaders. And listen, I encourage every single person in this room, get in a group. I, and Claire and I can speak for our own. We, I mean, the people that were in ours, I felt like they went to a just completely different level of community, spiritually. And here's the truth. Even when you step out of that, you feel it. You feel like something is missing. You feel like something isn't there. Being around other believers and other followers, or even, to, to be honest with you, other people that are right where you're at, but you're all pursuing the same goal. You want greater intimacy with Christ. That's what I love about this church. That's what I love about our people. I think we genuinely do strive to get to a place where we can say, listen, We want to rub shoulders with people. We want to get into the intimate details of people's lives, not so that we can just do that, but at the end of the day, so that you can actually experience life transformation and that God could come into the depths of your soul and the places that you never thought that you could be free, and he sets you free. And if you're struggling with addiction, if you're struggling with just being alone and loneliness, that's not the life God wants for you. He has so much more for you. But the thing that I also love about Jesus is if you're struggling today, this is what he's saying to you. Take everything that you have and just bring it to me and I'll take care of the rest. Listen, he's not saying, hey, listen, you need to go out these doors and before you ever join a life group or before you ever start growing in Christ, and you know what, you just, you need to go clean yourself up. You need to get better first. The truth, the question that I ask people all the time is, how's that working for you? Because it doesn't. If you could clean yourself up, you would have done it already. We need other people to rub shoulders with. The Bible says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. So I want to encourage you, next week when you see all those tables out there, sign up for a life group. Get involved. Get connected.